you'll open your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And as we study the book of 1 Thessalonians, it's always good to just remind ourselves that Paul is writing a letter, a real letter, a letter to real people, to people that he won to faith in Jesus Christ, a people that he had to leave while they were very young Christians. In fact, they were probably only a few weeks old in the Lord. And Paul's disciples ushered him out of town because his life was literally in danger. And so as Paul writes this letter to the church at Thessalonica, very young converts, we have a window into a first century church of brand new converts. And we see the struggles that they had We find the issues that Paul thinks it's very important for new believers, young believers to grapple with and to get their arms wrapped around. And so it's very insightful and very helpful. It's also helpful for us to understand that in chapter 2, Paul is defending himself against accusations that are being made against him to his converts in Thessalonica. You can only imagine what Paul's opponents were saying to those whom Paul won to faith in Christ. Those Paul won to faith in Christ are suffering persecution. They're being ostracized and they're being edged out of society, pushed to the, pushed to the fringes of society. They used to worship Apollos and Zeus and Hermes. And when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they rejected the false gods of the Greco-Roman world, and they put their faith in the one true and living God. And when people hear that, they take offense to that. And so the questions that are probably being put to the Thessalonian Christians are this, while you are suffering for the gospel, where is Paul? While you are being alienated and marginalized, where is Paul? If Paul believed what Paul says he believes, Paul would be right here with you. He'd be willing to suffer persecution with you. He'd be really willing to be ostracized with you. But all he's interested in is going into a city, starting a quote-unquote church, getting some financial resources, and then moving on and leaving behind those people who trusted him to suffer the consequences of a message that he didn't believe enough to stay behind and fight for. Well, those are good, uh, good things to, to think about. What would Paul say to that? What did he say to it? And as we, as we read Paul's defense of his character and his beliefs in chapter 2, 1 through 12, we discover something very important. We discover that God called Paul to live a life that made a difference, and he did, and he does the same for us. We should be living to make a difference. And when we live to make a difference, sometimes we will be misunderstood. Sometimes our motives will be maligned. Sometimes people will find us us very put off with. And so I want us to look at Paul's defense, and I want us to look at it from from the angle that I talked about last week, living to make a difference. We were only able to look at the first two verses But I want us to to rehearse a little bit of what we talked about last week. I want you to notice first, if you're going to live to make a difference, you've got to be resilient. Uh, You can't be a quitter. You can't be a person that wears their emotions on their sleeves. You, You can't be a person that's afraid to go into hard places. 
because God calls us to go into hard places sometimes. Look in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So if Paul was a coward, if Paul was afraid to suffer, he would not have left Philippi and then went to Thessalonica and done the very same thing that got him into trouble in Philippi, that is, preaching the gospel. He would not have left Thessalonica and gone to Berea and done the very same thing, that is, preached the gospel. He would not have left Berea and gone to Athens and done the very same thing, preach the gospel. He would not have left Athens and gone to Corinth, one of the most immoral, decadent cities in the ancient world, and preached the gospel and started a thriving church. God calls us sometimes to go to hard places. And he sends us into these hard places with a message, a gospel message. The gospel is the good news from God, and it is the good news about God that God has made a way to reconcile sinners to Himself through the death and the resurrection of His beloved Son, our Savior. So Paul went to Thessalonica. He says, to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. God calls us to hard places. If He's called you to the assembly line of the Ford plant, You may be surrounded by people who who have no interest in the gospel. You may have people around you who are uh, foul-mouthed. You might have people around you that are very moral and upstanding people. You probably do, but they might not know Jesus. And if we abandon the hard places, who will bring light to the hard places? You may work on the conveyor belt at UPS. And at UPS, you may be surrounded by some very good people, and I'm sure you most often are, but there are going to be some people that are going to be anti-gospel. There are even good people that are anti-gospel because to, to believe the gospel is to say no matter how moral I am, no matter how good I am, I am a sinner separated from God and I have a need, I'm in need of a Savior And I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And and whether you're a good person or not such a good person, that message can be very offensive to people. But if God's people abandon the conveyor belt at UPS, who takes the gospel there? If you work in a doctor's office, and in that doctor's office, you're the only light. And the doctor that you work for, the physician and and the associates in that office are very likely very good people. But if they don't know Jesus, that is a place of darkness. And you may be the only light, and if you abandon the darkness because you want to only live with people like you in isolation with people like you, to live in a Christian commune, then you must as well follow the, 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 the people that will withdraw from society and live in the desert in church history, the monastic movement. That is anti-Christian. That was anti-Christian to abandon the world, to live in the wilderness, to escape lost mankind, because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus abandoned heaven to come to a hard place to die a terrible death that he might bring about the possibility or bring about the actuality that people can be reconciled to God. So I want you to know that we've got to be resilient if we're going to live a life to make a difference. Second, 
we need to be God-focused. We can't base our life on what people say about us or people's affirmation to us. I want you to notice with me, beginning in verse 3 through verse uh, 5, for our exhortation does not come from impurity or, I'm sorry, from error or impurity or by way of deceit. So his motives were pure. But just as we have been approved by God, that means to be tested by God, put into the fire and tested and refined, approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Notice in verse 2, he says, speak to you the gospel. He says here in this verse, not as pleasing men, I'm sorry, go back just a little bit, with the gospel, so we speak. The gospel has to be articulated. We live the gospel out in front of people, but there must be the articulation of it. People don't put their faith in our godly life. They put out their faith in the gospel message, in the gospel spoken and articulated. It's not enough just to say, well, I'm going to live a good life and let my life be the gospel that they will believe in because they'll never believe in it. They have to have a gospel message. Now, we want our life and our words to work together. We don't want our life to contradict our message, but there needs to be the articulation of the gospel. But notice he said that he didn't live to please men, but to please God, and God is the one that examines our hearts. He goes on to say, for we never came with flattering speech. So not only were his motives pure, but so are also are his methods. As you know how as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Notice he says he lives to please God and he doesn't live for the glory of men. Sometimes God calls us to a task and he never intends for people to give us the affirmation that sometimes we long for. Because God wants to discover, he wants us to discover for ourselves, do I do this because of the affirmation I receive or do I do this because God is glorified in it and he's called me to it? Now, it's good to, to receive affirmation. It's good for the church to affirm what people do. But sometimes people say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm finished with them. I, I'm done with them. I, I, I work my finger to the bone down there, and nobody ever seems to notice, and nobody ever seems to care. So then the question becomes, who do you really do it for? What if nobody ever affirmed us? Nobody ever patted us on the back. Nobody ever commended us. And God, sitting on heaven's throne, is pleased and glorified and honored and exalted by your tireless effort, by the energy and the finances that you expend in gospel ministry. If God is pleased, it doesn't mean that the other doesn't hurt and there's not some disappointment in it. It just means that there's someone that matters more, and the one that matters more is the one that sits on heaven's throne. It's not easy to 
move and forward and to engage in ministry and get your hands dirty and, and do the kinds of things that service to the kingdom involve, it's not easy to do it without others taking notice or affirming or commending us. But we have to decide which matters more. You know, so often in, in pastoral ministry, I've seen over the years, and I can just tell you at times as it has been true of me, that you begin with the most laudatory of motives. I, I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. I'm going to serve the people of God. I'm going to be God's spokesperson. I'm going to give my life to the church or whatever the, the ministry may be. And then slowly over time, it's easy to begin to make it about yourself. And I can tell when I'm making it about myself when I begin to listen for the affirmation of others and I begin to cease looking for the affirmation of God. God examines our hearts. Uh, Paul said that, he, that he, he sought not the glory of man but the glory of God. He didn't do it to please men. He did it to please God. So we've got to be God-focused if we're going to make a difference in this world for the kingdom. The third is we've got to be people-oriented, people-oriented. God did not call pastors to build buildings or great edifices. He called pastors to build the church. The church is the people of God. And he calls all of us to serve people. There's something wrong with the pastor that doesn't like people or the pastor that doesn't engage people. There's equally something wrong with congregants who like to isolate themselves from people because we're part of a body, we're part of a family, we're, we're part of a movement, we're part of a kingdom. And so whenever I, whenever I want to make it about my study, Jalen has her ways of coming in and saying, get out there where the real people, uh, people live for a, for a change. It'll do you good, and it does do me good. Look at beginning in verse 7. This is where I get this from. But we, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. He compares himself to a mother. He's people-oriented. If there's anybody that loves children, it's a mother. If there's anybody that can hear the cry of a distant child, it's a mother. If there's anyone that's tender and gentle and loving, it's a mother. And so he compares himself to a mother in the, in the way that a mother, excuse me, raises children and in the way that he feels toward them, tenderly cares for her own children, having a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, that is, he did that. He spoke the gospel to them. He imparted the gospel to them, but also our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. You've got to be people-oriented. I am a person that is, that is not outwardly gregarious. You, you know that. I'm basically a quiet person. I'm basically a reserved, uh, reserved person. And yet God wants me not to change my personality, but for my personality to minister to people within who I am. So I, I won't light up a room, but God wants me to go into a room and to minister to people, to care for people, and that's what he wants for every single congregant, not just for a pastor, 
but for every single believer to love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be involved in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to serve the people of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a part of the family of God, the part of the family of God that is, that is intricately involved in the people of God. Uh, the fourth thing that I, I want you to, to notice is this, that, that we need to be holy. All of these qualities to be God-focused, people-oriented, and resilient need to, be, need to be soaked in the disposition of holiness. Look with me beginning in verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day is not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. That's the fourth time. They, he imparted the gospel of God to them. He spoke the gospel of God to them. He says it twice, now again. Uh, proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Now, he, he doesn't want us to get out a lexicon, a dictionary, and, 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 and slightly uh, define in the distinctions between what it means to be devout, upright, and blameless. He's just stacking words one upon another that he wants us to live Christ-like lives. He wants us to be holy people. And, and that holiness works its way out in how we behave toward one another. We, we are holy. We are devout. We are blameless. We are upright in our interactions. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children. So he uses the image of a mother, gentle, caring, tender. He uses the image of a father to be exhorting and encouraging and, and imploring so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. That's the goal, to invest our lives in people so that they can grow up in Christ-likeness and live godly lives, that we can reproduce ourselves in discipleship, one believer pouring his life into another believer so that believer grows and matures and develops, and then that believer pours his or her life into another believer to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord uh, the worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, you step back from that, and, and there's something that, a couple of things that I found very interesting by the repetition of the thought. One is I, I've brought it up numerous times about how Paul keeps making reference to the gospel. In verse 2, in verse 4, in verse 8, in verse 9. He makes reference to the gospel, speaking the gospel, imparting the gospel, sharing the gospel. And it's really hard to, to be a gospel witness. It's hard for me, and it's probably hard for many of us. So what do you do? Well, you begin your day, and you say, Lord, give me an opportunity to speak a good word, and show me when that door is open. And then God will surprise us and open very slightly doors where we might be able to speak a good word. For example, at the Kroger, you're going through and you, you speak to the cashier as you're getting ready to leave. The Lord bless you today. Uh, and that little seed, it's just a gospel seed. Well, it's not a lot. It doesn't seem like much, but we don't know how the Spirit of God will take that little seed. We don't know what other people are speaking into their life. And maybe she's heard that numerous times that day. And God begins to use it to reverberate in her mind. I've I've been told five times today, the Lord bless you today. And maybe someone 
opens the door much wider. I, I tell you, I, I'm really concerned. My wife has got a, a doctor appointment, and I'm very concerned about what's going to happen. And you, and you say, I tell you what, tell me your wife's name. Can I pray for her? And we, uh, if it wouldn't embarrass you, would it be all right if I prayed for her right now? You don't know what kind of a gospel witness that may be. You don't know what God may be doing in that person, in that family, and how that might be used by God when that person lays down that night beside his wife who's waiting for a doctor report and reverberating in his mind that, that, yeah, that man prayed for me. The gospel of God. The other thing that I saw is the repetition of the word no, K-N-O-W. Uh, notice you see it in verse 1, for you yourselves know. Uh, you see it again in verse 5, flattering speech as you know. Uh, you'll see it again when he says in verse 9, for you recall. You'll see it again in verse 10, you are witnesses. You see it again in verse 11, just as you know. See, what he's doing is he's saying to them, you know how I lived among you. I was transparent and I was present. So his enemies are saying, listen, he's a coward. He, he's a traveling rhetorician. He is a renegade philosopher trying to make a, make a coin off people. But Paul says, you know. Sometimes in this age of multimedia, we judge people on maybe just a very brief segment of their life when we know an entire segment of their life. We've known them for many years, and someone says something to us about them, and it goes against everything we know that per, about that person to be true. Maybe in that moment it is true. Maybe in that moment they are not who they should have been, but we know the overarching tenor of their life, and that's what Paul's saying. You know me. And we need to live among people and we need to live with people in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can be known and that we can make a difference. Well, I'm going to ask you to stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer. What I'm going to do is to give you just a moment as you stand and to think uh, with our eyes closed, uh, just to think for just a moment about the verses that we've read, what Paul wrote how the Spirit can use it, and see if there's not something that comes to your heart and mind, something that's, as I've said a moment ago, it's, it's reverberating like an echo in your thoughts. It's leaving an impression on your heart. Father, we need your word more than we could ever imagine. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of our God. Your word was found and we ate them. Your word became to us a joy. How can a young person keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? We need your spirit to take your word, use it in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.